Hello there. Welcome back to Faith with Haith. I'm Jamie Haith in central London. Very excited to tell you about my guest today. He's all the way over in one of the coolest cities in the world. He's in Los Angeles. His name is Gerd Jones. He's the Reverend Gerd Jones. He's senior pastor of Vintage Church LA. He's senior pastor, lead pastor, lord of the manor. What what do you prefer, Gerd? Um, mate, probably, but yeah, no, I guess I'm the pastor of this place. Just the pastor. And now you have been up, uh, we're recording this at about 5pm London time. You've been up already because it's first thing in the morning for you, but you've been on the beach already because you are, you're proper LA, you're Santa Monica right by the beach. Well, I am on Santa Monica, yeah, right near the beach, but I would say it's a lot more exciting to say I've been on the beach kind of surfing, but uh, that's not the case. We live in a little apartment, uh, really not a nice one, but it's an apartment with three Labradors. And so I'm up every morning giving them a good five, six mile walk. So uh, You um, walk five, six miles every morning? I do, just because <laughs> Labradors love a lot of exercise. And so our three labs, they pester me. I get up around six and I'm on the road. So, uh, But it's brilliant. It actually clears my head. I have a bit of a pray. Have a bit of think, a bit of a think. Listen to some music. Actually, without it, I think I'd just be too lazy to get up in the morning, you know, and do all those things. I can't so, believe you've got three Labradors in an apartment. Well, we didn't have them. We had them before the apartment, and we lived in the house. Okay. But my wife is from Sydney, and she we said let's move near the beach. And so you have to downsize in LA to live near the beach, but it was worth it. So. Uh, they're brilliant, but it does mean I'm up and out and about very early. So it's like nine o'clock, but feels like it's lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got, we got to, uh, there's an awful lot of dog lovers out there, and many of whom I'm assuming listen to this podcast. What are the names of your dogs, please? Amazing. Well, um, Sandy is our eldest, named after one of our heroes, um, Sandy Miller. Uh, secondly, we've got Elsie, named after my. Uh, another hero in my life, Gran, my Gran, and then Charlie. Um, and Charlie's our youngest lab. So uh, they're absolutely fantastic, but a lot of work. And you love them all equally? We do love them all. Well, ah. well, <laughs> no, well don't the go jury's there. out on that one. The don't jury's, go there. <laughs> the jury's out on that one. But so we I, do. I, I've been wondering, so many of my friends have got dogs, and I've been, I've been teetering on the brink, I've got to, I've got to say. Mate, you've got to do it. get a lab. They're absolutely, they're just good quality. They're, they're brilliant friends. Um, they sense when you're down and they come up and give you a bit of a cuddle. Um, they're lots of fun outside exercise. Uh, so, yeah, they're brilliant. I mean, what, you should do it. Definitely. What's the difference between a lab and a retriever? I have no idea, mate. No, neither they're both I. retriever. I mean, they're all retrievers. They basically will you know, go get anything you throw. Um, so there's different types of retrievers in the retriever family so you've got golden retrievers you've got labrador retrievers but they'll just go and catch anything all day even you got to be doesn't, careful but doesn't, may, yeah exactly stop. doesn't doesn't that doesn't mean you've got to keep throwing them things it does but then you eventually fall over out of exhaustion which is oh, how okay. i feel lots of the time so uh, you have to watch that but yeah, really, you, well, you're not exhausted right now you're ready to go aren't you you're, I'm you're excited you're excited to talk about anything and everything i've got to ask you though you it. don't sound like you're from la no no not at all i was 
born in a town called Bradford in the north of England. I don't really sound like I'm from Bradford. You're a Yorkshireman. A Yorkshireman. Um, we, yeah, born in Bradford, but then lived all over England a bit, but uh, went to London, a bit of background. So I was a lawyer in London and then in brand management uh, there as well. And then we eventually moved out here with a calling to um, plant a church here in LA. So, yeah, so we're very much what we would say are missionaries to this place, which we love dearly, but it's a, it's a very long way from Bradford, to be sure. What was growing up like for you? Your dad was actually in church circles, um, very well-known, a very well-known preacher and leader. Yeah, he was at the time. It was actually quite strange. Less known nowadays, he died quite a few years ago. His name was uh, Bryn Jones, and grew up with him. And I got to say, it was quite surreal because he was a great dad, very loving, but he was away a lot because things were exploding in the church world. I mean, lots. We he was planting a lot of churches, lots of conferences, um, going all over the world to encourage young churches and plant new ones. And then we saw just incredible things through him and through others, people like Terry Virgo. And et cetera. We, as a young kid, I got like a front row seat to what I would say was just undeniable things of God, um, people being radically kind of saved from lots of addictions, people being healed, and people's lives being transformed by the love of Jesus. It was amazing as a kid to see all of that and be caught up in that. Um, and a real privilege. And I, actually, when I've gone through pretty dark seasons in my own faith, I've actually looked back at those times as real anchor points, which which helped really tell me, look, I've seen too much to throw this all away, but I've got to find my own way as well. But it was a real privilege. It was hard as well, because sometimes my father had a lot of op- opposition. And so when you're a kid and you see your dad kind of being criticized on TV or in public. I remember going to a pizza hut after church with my mum and there were two people to the table next to us really digging into my dad and they were pastors actually and they were wearing little collars and um, really having a go and it was weird as a young kid to hear someone really lay into your dad like that and so very felt very protective but also had to process what what does this all mean for my faith as well. So there was a real mixed part of it, for sure. You, uh, you've listened to this podcast before with them um, mm. over in LA, and you've heard various guests. And so you're probably, you're probably ready for the fact that I'm going to pull on the thread that you just gave me of your faith being something which, which was both challenged, but also a source of strength for you in darker times. Would you yes. mind ex- expounding on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I I grew up as a teenager really having a profound, I think, profound and deep faith in Jesus. I, I had some pretty powerful encounters with his presence, and it really shaped my worldview. And I loved actually... I didn't know any Christians at school. I didn't know any Christians except a few in my youth group at church. And so it, it felt very odd to be a Christian, but it was undeniable 
But I also, when I went to university and then came out of uni, I also had then had a real crisis of faith. Not so much because of the typical, what do I believe? I kind of wrestled with that as a teenager. But I really had some struggles with the church. I had done some things which I wasn't proud of. And so I felt, hang on a minute, wow, where did that come from? And and also had some bad experiences with the church. And it really caused me to question everything of, was it a lie? Was it made up? Was I a kid just swept along with emotionalism? And so I think when I came out of uni, today people would call it deconstruction. I think in that day, I just had this crisis of faith. I called it, I had a bit of a spiritual breakdown. And I really didn't like Christians. I really thought I had been manipulated. A lot of my faith, I thought, was being pushed on me. A lot of, a lot of times I was trying to please pastors and please Christians way too much. And I thought by pleasing them, I was pleasing Jesus. And I'd got actually, you know, the phrase, my Nick is in a twist. I'd really got confused about what is faith? What is following Jesus? What is just accepting what I've, I've been told? What is um, obedience? What is faith? What is hearing God's voice? It all was confusing. And I decided just to leave it all and throw it all away. I decided I went to London. I, I got a job in, a, in an law firm there and decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to leave it all behind. I think actually I had this powerful experience of Jesus, but the rest of it seemed really oppressive and destructive to me. And so I left it all behind. And it was, it was actually very interesting. I thought, you know, I'm going to try out this other way of life that all my mates say is the good life you know, freedom of expression, do what you want, don't let anybody tell you what to do. And so I was a lawyer and got into a bit of clubbing, got into, you know, drinking at the weekend, lots of football and watching football, you know, just doing the typical London mate's life and try to wrestle with, well, is that it? Is that is my faith gone altogether? Um, and it was actually quite... A dark time, to be honest, because I felt I was in this void of, I can't leave Jesus behind because I do think he's real. I've I, I've had some profound experiences with him. I've had some profound times with him. I really do believe his teachings made sense. I'd examined the evidence and I thought it seems plausible, but not only plausible, but my experience backs it up. But so much of my experience of what came with that was so toxic, I actually didn't know what to do. Um, and so that was lots of wandering the streets of London, quite depressed, actually, um, trying to live the good life of clubbing and alcohol and career or, or you know, relationships, all the rest of it. But I, I felt caught between two worlds, not fully being able to leave Jesus behind, but not fully buying into this story that just living your own life with your own set of values and your own set of feelings as kind of priority was working. And so it was quite depressing to be honest, Jamie, and I didn't know what to do with it. Lots of dark times. And um, thankfully I didn't do anything that was stupid, but 
I was starting to push the boundaries because I was starting to get quite lost in it all. But that does raise a really good question. What is core to the Christian faith that is unassailable, totally essential, um, that if, if you've got that, then you've got it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And what, what else is just, is, is non-essential? What else is, is, for want of a better word, trappings? Um, yeah. Because we do get into, I suppose, let, let's let's put it like this. How do you define between Christianity and churchianity? Hmm. Yeah, totally. Churchianity is awful. Um and in fact, I th- you know, I look back at Jesus and when I go back and read the Gospels, I think he didn't like churchianity either. I mean, the, the thing he got most upset by and really angry with was the church kind of misbehaving, really. Um, and actually quite in a toxic way, you know, he took the whip out and sought to really tidy up his church because it wasn't representing him. And I think, I think that's where my faith eventually came was... Um, I couldn't leave Jesus behind. And it, I, I kind of recalibrated my faith around, wow, I think I've been a churchian a lot and trying to please people in church. And a lot of that goes back to my dad issues, to be honest. And I'm sure you're going to pull that thread in a minute. But, um, I wanted to please people so much. I wanted to please Christians. I wanted to please pastors. I wanted to be the good Christian. And I think I wanted to please God. And pleasing people and their approval became so much that that, Actually, I lost the sight of Jesus in my faith. And it was one morning, I was in a flat in Kennington, and I shared with a couple of mates from work. Um, and I remember, actually, it was a bit of a low moment, actually. I'd, I got back from a night out, and I lost my keys, and I had way too much to drink. And that might be why you lost your keys. <laughs> Probably. It was really early in the morning. And, you know, in that state, you just obviously don't think straight at all. And what seems right is absolutely definitely not right. And so the only thought, the only way I thought I'm going to get into my flat was, well, if I can't get through the door, well, it makes sense, doesn't it, to get through the window. And so I just took a brick and, like, threw it through no. the window. No. Uh, what time of the morning is this? Oh, uh, it was dread- I think it probably – it was after the club – Close, so maybe about three. Oh. And so I climbed through, I'm in my pinstripe suit still, you know, climbed through the window over the kitchen sink, glass everywhere. And I and I staggered up to my bedroom and just fell asleep. And I, I remember my flatmate waking me up and having a real go at me. And rightly so. And it really just brought me to my senses a bit. I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And a couple of days later, I woke up. And I, you know, thinking no, not not from the same sleep. No, so I gone to work, and a couple, <laughs> okay. but I remember a couple of days wait, late. I was going through I, for the whole two days, thinking, "What is going on?" And then I woke up a couple of days later in my flat. I really, actually, only a few times ever in my life, I felt a profound Jesus is in the room. Wow! And I remember this real sense of presence of a deep spiritual being in the room. And I knew enough of my background and my experience as a kid to go, I think Jesus is in the room. And I literally rolled off the bed, out of bed onto my knees. And I remember Jesus in my mind, it wasn't an audible voice, but I remember feeling Jesus telling me that he'll never leave me, that 
He loves me. And I remember this deep sense of Jesus, I do love you. And then he actually challenged me. He said, Gay, you can't love me and not my church. I love my church. And it felt like the light switch went on with a, a new love I have for his church, his people. That it wasn't because they're amazing. Like I wasn't amazing. Look at me. I'm throwing bricks through windows. Um, and, and yet I really sense that God loved his people so much, despite all of our brokenness, despite the toxicity, despite the stuff I'd experienced, despite the stuff I'd done to people in church, that this new love came into my life, not only for Jesus, but for his people. And there's a, a verse in the Bible that describes Jesus loving his church and like washing her and cleansing her. And I actually felt, oh my word, I've been beating up your church. I've been ridiculing your church. I've been shaming pastors. I used to say to people, you know, that phrase, if you can't, you know, if you can't, if you can't do teach, I used to go, if you can't do teach, if you can't teach, preach, you know, it's like preaching is the lowest of the lowest of professions. Um, and yet I suddenly had this conviction of actually, this is Jesus's bride, as he said. And yeah, we mess, we're messy, but it's still Jesus is the anchor and he's the anchor of our faith. But he brings us into family and sometimes the family is messy. And we're messy. We bring more mess to it. But he loves his family. And he loves them so much that he will never give up on his family. And he brought me into that story to go again, no matter what the family's like, will you love her and bring my love and healing to her? And so I think that has shaped that experience and that light switch that went on. As now, whenever I see the pain in church that either I bring or other people bring, I don't, I don't check out, do, do a geographic, so to speak, and just leave. But I really feel we need to bed down and go, actually, we're, we're family. We need to sort this out. We need to follow Jesus, even in loving one another and caring for each other, forgiving one another. And that's been my journey since then. And so I, I gingerly then started to step back into church. I was so nervous. I mean, the first church I went to was St. Bart's Catholic Church near where I lived, oh, sorry, worked um, in, in the city. And I went there because I, I, I knew no one would know me there. And you know, I sat on the back row and gingerly stepped back in, very nervous. And then a friend eventually invited me to a different church, which... I was very nervous about coming to, and it was uh, called Holy Trinity Brompton, where I think, Jamie, I didn't know you, but you were on staff there. And I was so nervous about going. Um, I thought I'd be judged, I'd, I'd be shamed. But I had this in my ear the whole time, Jesus saying, look, I'm the anchor of your faith. Just follow me, just trust me. But you can't love me and not my church. And so I was petrified, to be honest. In fact, I remember that first Sunday, going back into church, I sat on the back row um, and then I went to the toilet because I was so nervous. I felt nervous. I felt naked. I felt exposed. Went to the toilet and 
this bloke down near the toilets because HB toilets are the worst toilets in the world. I think there's two stalls for a thousand people. So we've been in this massive line. And then the guy kind of recognized me and went, aren't you, aren't you gay? And I completely thought, oh no, I can't, you know, I'm not safe here. Because of all the stuff I'd done, I thought no one's going to accept me in church. And then I said, no, I'm not, I'm not. And it was literally, I lied to his face and said, my name's John. <laughs> you know, just completely, completely lied. It's like, so it's like Peter on the night of the crucifixion. <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> totally lied. I've never seen yeah. him before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> never. Don't know who you're talking about, mate. You know, and uh, but that was actually, and that was, that was the beginning of a really new season for me because I'd never. That was the first time in a long time I'd been around other Christians that I felt were like Jesus, loving, accepting. Um, were more interested in me and what I than what I'd done wrong, and didn't shame me. And it took, you know, I slowly met people, and it was totally different from a man from Bradford being in posh South Kent. But I felt that Jesus was in this group of people, so He was the anchor of my faith. But I could start to see that He's also with this community. And so it, that began my long, long road to recovery, I think, to even calling myself a Christian again. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because we do judge God on the basis of the church. And it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. But of course, the disciples, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a, that's the reason that the disciples are so clearly flawed. And it's extraordinary that the Bible records just how flawed they are. People say the Bible's just made up. If you were going to make up a book, you wouldn't have all the imperfect people in it that there are. You would have great giants of faith that never had any dark moments like yourself. You mentioned preaching. I did um, a while ago a, a sermon series of my own called what to do when you don't know what to do and it was about it's about guidance and it's especially about the book of acts and what you see trying to sort of see for a moment through the eyes of the disciples who've been given this task of of birthing and growing the the worldwide church from scratch and they did not have a clue they didn't have a clue what to do and you don't know what to do they didn't have a clue and so Um. You see all of these ways that they're they're working it out and they're they're making mistakes, but they're they're just staying true to Jesus. And it's okay to make mistakes because they're failing forward, as the as the term goes. They they mm-hmm. they just want to um, honor God and to do the best that they can. I think that's really that's really all we can expect of ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, it's been. I mean, I thank the Lord for two types of people in my life when it comes to church. I thank. I thank Jesus for people in my life who modeled to me why wow, you're just like Jesus. Mm-hmm. That actually you have been transformed and you're just like Jesus. Now, when I was wandering the streets of London, totally broken, I'd really, I mean, Jamie, when I say the church had disappointed me, I mean, I'm pointing at myself. I'd, I'd hurt a lot of people. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm the most broken one in this story. And, but I remember lots of people had rejected me and 
lots of people had said some pretty mean stuff and it really hurt. But there were two people who were really, I would say, Jesus to me. And in the darkest of darks, I was trying to throw away everything. I couldn't throw away what Jesus had done in them and how they loved me, you know, and their names, I think you may know them, but, you know, Wes and Andrew were people who I thought, actually, I can't throw this away because you are Jesus to me. You're loving me in a way which is so different. You're caring for me in a way which is so unconditional. Um, And so I think there are people in our lives, and I think the church does do that. I think the church, sometimes we look at the church and we go, oh, my word, you are like the body of Christ. You are transformed. We do something called Alpha here, Vintage, and a guy in my group who is not a Jesus follower at all said the only reason he's there is because he's met these Christians and he goes, there's something different about them. Mm -hmm. And I think, so that's the first category. I go, there are, there is that. But then the second thing is there's people like me who sometimes are really broken and don't do the things that Jesus did and really hurt people. And I don't think I'm the only one, and sometimes churches badly behave, but I'm thankful for that as well because it reminds me that actually Jesus doesn't bring us into his family because of performance, that we're there by grace. And the church, of course, is going to be messy because actually it's full of people who go, I'm so broken, I can't fix myself. And actually I was never designed to fix myself. So you... That really brings me joy because church is a place where it's okay not to be okay. Actually, that's the point. We need help. We need someone to heal us. And so I think there's that really beautiful combination of the church at its best, I think, is both showing that we're all broken. And so don't be disillusioned when you see broken people in church because that's the point. We are broken and we need Jesus to heal us. At the same time, we celebrate when the church is so transformed by the love of Jesus that by his grace and in humility, we actually start to look like him a bit and we start to do the things that he did. And there's been people on this amazing podcast that I go, oh my word, look what Jesus has done in their life that they do this to others. And so I actually think, whereas before I used to beat up the church for its brokenness, I'm actually, it reminds me that actually it's a safe place for the broken. It's okay because whereas everything else in life is saying, if you perform, you're accepted. The church, thankfully, is the place where you can come precisely because you're not okay and you're broken. Because that's on that's the basis on which Jesus welcomes you. So let's do a shameless plug for your church. Um, Thirty seconds, thirty second plug for Vintage Church LA. Um, your actually your building is amazing, isn't it? It was. Get, can I get this right? It was given to you. Uh, it, it, people may know the building because it was in the Steve Martin version of Father of the Bride. Yes. Beautiful building in Santa Monica, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. And we were a little church plant and renting a school hall. And then suddenly we, we were approached by this lovely, lovely church, but small church who just had their pastor re- re- retire, not just resign. And so they had the huge heart to say, 
why don't we merge with another church? And so they approached us and they approached quite a few other churches in LA who didn't have buildings and said, um, do you want to all kind of chat and interview, so to speak, and to see if we could want to merge with you? And so after about a year, uh, they'd whittled it down to two or three churches. And it felt a bit odd, actually, because they said, great, we've whittled it down to two churches and uh, you're all, you both will preach. And at the end of both those Sundays where you both preach, will vote. <laughs> so we'll was, give you a massive building. Yeah. And then literally it's like, you know, $25 million worth of property <laughs> in the heart. So I remember... Pressure's this, on, buddy. Pressure's on. Well, I remember stepping up to preach and one of the elders of the church, of the Baptist churches that was there, said, whispered, he said, don't mess this up, buddy. <laughs> $25 million on the line. You know, and he's just like, come on. I mean, I think he did it tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, uh, so yeah, so after that, they for some reason they said let's let's go with vintage, and we merged, and it was a beautiful story of about thirty uh, senior Christians who love Jesus merging with a church of mostly twenties and thirties, about so about four hundred of us. So they were really kind of swept up into this new community, and I think it's been a place. What we really hoped it has been is a place where people who are struggling with their faith, like I was, or don't know Jesus, in a city like LA, they can come and not feel judged, not feel shamed, not feel that they have to perform, that they can feel they can just be themselves and investigate Jesus um, without being pushed or kind of preached at. And so I think by God's grace, we've been able to lead into that a bit and we've just seen lots of beautiful stories of people meeting jesus and you've got your own pub an outdoor pub it wouldn't go down very well here i don't know if you can hear in the the background it's eased off a bit now i'm very conscious that you're by the beach in sunny la it's absolutely hooning it down in central london right (laughs) but you've got an outdoor pub with sort of like festival lights and 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 do you serve beer at church Really? We do. We do. I mean, it's 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 focused around something we call Alpha. We run Alpha, um, which is just a safe place for people to explore Jesus without judgment or shame or being preached at. And we always knew, for me, I was so petrified about going to church, as I said. And I wish it would have been a safe environment, that I knew it would be a safe environment. And so... Jesus went to people, didn't he? He didn't shout from the, from the heavens with a megaphone, but he dressed like us and went to dinner parties. And, and he went to people and went to their space. And so when people come to us, we know, oh, man, we wish we could make it your space where you, you felt safe. And so what we do when we run Alpha is we make the church as much of a non-churchy environment as possible. So we get rid of all Christian stuff. You know, we make it. Uh, we well, have you, a hide, you hide the tambourines. We have hide the tambourines. It's a completely neutral environment. We make it a, a real kind of fun place to be. We've got great lighting. We've got uh, great events, kind of atmosphere that people feel in LA. They kind of they're used to kind of launch events and parties at restaurants and 
and clubs. And so we kind of make it like that because we really do want to make people feel like Jesus comes to you. You don't have to come to us. But where, where, do you get pushback on that? Because I, I, as you know, um, we ran a church in DC for many years. And one of the things that we, we would have parties and things and, and serve alcohol and, and it blew people's minds. They're like, I, I can do this in, in church. And of course, it's massive dualism as it's, you know, that, that something that's okay outside a so-called sacred building suddenly becomes not okay in said building but it's like what will we believe that worship is the whole of our lives something magical doesn't happen to you as you step into this building this is a simply a gathering place for the family of god but at the same time you have to be so conscious of the fact that alcohol becomes is is really problematic for actually quite a lot of people it is and Everything's an expression, not of being cool. We're not trying to be relevant. We're not trying to obviously get drunk and things. We're not trying to be like the world is what the fears are. What we say is we actually, this is, a, this is an expression of hospitality and love. Yeah. That we want to make people feel safe. And whenever you go, you know, sociologically, whenever you go to an event, you walk through and you are petrified if you don't know anyone. You walk in and you go, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And people, I was like this, you go to the bar to feel safe, you get a drink. And it's not so much about the alcohol, it's about, okay, I feel this is not a strange environment for me. And so we have this pub, uh, it's a two drink limit. We, it's not, we're not like doing yards and shots and things like that. It's literally, we have craft beers, uh, two drink limit. And we have lots of great non-alcoholic craft sodas, etc. So and there's not just, there's no beer pong with the vicar coming up. <laughs> those days are over, mate. Um, <laughs> so those days are so yeah. So it's an it's an expression of love, and actually, anybody who has concerns, we say, look, come along, and you see, no one's abusing it, and actually, yeah. you see all these people who are afraid to come they start to relax, not because of what they're drinking, but because the environment feels loving to them. It feels incarnational, to use that theological word, and people feel safe. And it's and what's really exciting for me is that, you know, we have, I mean, COVID's changed everything, but before COVID, we'd have like three to 400 people come. Wow. And they would honestly say we would feel safe we feel that we can be ourselves we yeah. feel that yeah. we can say anything we want and we're so glad for this environment that is a safe space and so that's why we do it and it's there are a few people who struggle which we make sure that they feel that we're not pushing alcohol and things like this it's just an expression of love and an expression of safety and of course jesus jesus turned water into, into wine you know and as an expression of love and hospitality. And so I think there are moments where we have to reach out beyond our bubble, beyond what we normally do, to go to people themselves and go to their environment and make sure they're safe. And in those moments, they can open their ears to the message of Jesus. Gerd Jones. you uh, What's Gerd short for? Geraint. It's short for Geraint, George. Geraint. Hello, Geraint. <laughs> Welshman who grew no up... No one can say it at all, uh, except in Wales. So it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a curse, I've got to say, from a Welsh father. 
Nice, nice. A lovely name. So, so you are, you've got a real heart for vision, for strategy, for leadership. You've got a real heart for raising up leaders. And, and I do see you as a kind of, um, well, you're too young to really call you this, but sort of a spiritual father figure, um, trying to, you know, so to, 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 re- actually be a church leader but also to raise up other pastors i know you've got a real heart for that as well but i'd love to backtrack a little bit into you knew i was going to take us back here into <laughs> not into our our um uh dad issues but both of us uh your dad died quite a long time ago mine died six years ago um and I just think it'd be good to talk about that in the time that we have left. I never know when when we start these conversations on this podcast where what um yeah. where we're going to sort of where where the the avenue is going to wind us. But um if you don't mind can can we talk about that for a bit? You're a dad. You have yeah. Amy and Naomi and Sam. Um yeah. and like me with my four, you know, you get that right, you get that wrong. Um we, we, no one gives us a manual for being a dad. So we could talk about parenting if you like, but I, um, I suppose I'd quite like to talk about losing your dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I know that it, it deflated me. Like I, I could never have imagined, even mm. though my dad had MS for 25 years, multiple sclerosis, and I should have got ready. Um, should have seen it coming, but it's right. the weirdest thing when your dad dies. And I think it's processing it afterwards is still so hard all these years on, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it was a shock. My father had had a bit of unhealth, but we thought he was through it. And I was actually in Australia and with my wife, who's from there. I remember getting back from playing golf with my father-in-law and seeing my, my phone with, I think, like 15 messages from my sister. You know, and you know something's wrong, don't you? You know, right? And I knew, I knew it was my dad. And then just the scramble of getting back to England and processing things on the plane. Um, but I think my heart actually, and this is what my father issues are kind of rooted in. I think my, I was so thankful for who my dad was and what he'd given me. He'd come from a really horrific background. I mean, a lovely mother, but really difficult environment in a coal mining town in Wales where his father was a gambling alcoholic and uh, all that comes with that. And so I, I had this huge gratitude of the things that he had done for us. Almost he wanted to break the cycle of what he'd grown up with and so we, he had provided for us and he was emotional and affectionate. And so that was, I really was thankful for that. But I also felt that I was about to go into ministry and that was, I was leaving my career, going to ministry and a real sense of loss of not having him around at all anymore. Um, and I think that's one of the saddest parts of being in ministry for me is not having my dad, who was this incredible, I think, incredible pastor, preacher, kind of be on that journey with me. Mm. And that's been really hard because so often I would have wanted to call my dad up and say, Dad, you know, what do you do? What did you do about Mm. this and that? And there's been a loneliness in that sense 
over the last 15 years when I've been in ministry. And actually, in a wrong way, a search for another father figure in that sense. And that's been a bit of a pain as well, because you kind of look to others and go, well, can you be my dad? <laughs> can you say well done? Because I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm in America, nowhere near anyone else that I know. I moved to LA. I'm planting a church in the city. I didn't know anyone. And there's been that void. And it's really been difficult, but also pushed me deeper into kind of God as my father. But I do think that's been part of a sadness for sure in not having him around, as well as for me recognizing that um, it, when I became a pastor, something unexpected happened. And this is a bit of the, the father issue I had, which was when you have a hugely successful dad and then you go into the same line of business, I didn't realize this until I became a pastor that that brings its huge crisis of performance into your own life. Mm. When I was a lawyer and in brand management, it didn't matter. I was carving my own path, my own journey. And the relative scale of success was what I was achieving. But suddenly I was a pastor where, I mean, the best preacher I knew was my dad and so often people would say he's the best preacher we ever knew. He was the best pastor people ever knew. He was the best church planter people ever knew. And I'm sure lots of people would go, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. But in my world, he was. And certainly as a son. And actually, apparently, it's quite a common phenomenon for people who are raised with successful dads that you have a crisis of confidence of, I'll never reach that standard. And it can either drive you to despair or it can drive you to a deep insecurity that you feel filled with performance anxiety and you try really hard to reach that standard. And that's been the battle of, I'd say, my journey in ministry is not having that route kind of destroy me because it leads to despair or false pride. Um, and I, one of the things which I really had to work on is, you know, trying to not live up to the standard, which is an impossible one. And when I don't hit it, not feeling deeply in, insignificant because of it. I think I listened to Bruce Springsteen once say every rock singer gets on stage and when they're wailing, they're wailing, daddy, you know, they're just wanting their dad to approve them. I think so many church planters and pastors when they're preaching or when they're planting are saying the same thing. They're, they're looking for approval. And so that's been a real, uh, my limp that I've been walking with. Am I doing this for approval? Am I doing, what's the standard I'm trying to hit um, and why? And so that's been something that's been really hard. And that's a bit why I love coming alongside other pastors. I was going to say, I, is that the bit that, you are aware of it and yeah. that does steal the power from it, doesn't it? It does because you're not doing it for Jesus. You're doing it for approval. You're doing it for validation. No, but I mean, it, you're, 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 you're aware of the issue for you. And yeah. so uh, you know, you're not, you're not barreling along blindly. You're right. able to say, I'm aware of this in my life. Absolutely. I'm aware yeah. that this is an Achilles heel. I just need to, to live accordingly. 
and then to to tell others look just be conscious of this in your leadership totally um and i think every pastor is you know i think every pastor in my world it's you know now it's not Bryn jones will you affirm me but it's maybe you know it was it was for a season Nicky Gumbel, will you affirm me? You know, it's whoever that father figure is. And thankfully, people don't live into that because that would be unhelpful. Um, and so I can come alongside pastors and I see pastors and I see the pain that they go through because I journey with it. And I go, let me, let's journey together. Here's my story. Um, I don't want you to be alone. But most pastors feel radically alone um, and insecure and um they're struggling with that and so i like to come alongside pastors and let's be there for each other and i love nothing more than to actually speak into pastors lives and encourage them and get on zoom and just say you're doing a good job you know i didn't have that for so many years and i i i would often weep that my dad wasn't around to do that and i just felt the lord say we'll do it for others um because everyone feels this way in ministry. You know, ministry is a, such a strange place to be in right now because it's, it's, it's very disrespected in big cities like here. And lots of Christians are upset with pastors for good reasons. And so very few people forget to actually realize that pastors, you know, it's a hard job. Um, and, and so I love to come alongside them and say, you're doing a good job. Um, we're all walking this limp together. Uh, I'm here for you. And how can I encourage you? And how can I support you? It's been so good to talk to you today and to hear your experience of life and see behind the curtain, the curtains, and uh, as it were. Um, I, I, you're very good at, at praying. You're much better at praying than I am. Um, <laughs> every now and again, I ask my guest if they would mind sort of wrapping us up with a prayer. Um, I'm sure you, you're you going to say yes to that, aren't you? Uh, Matt, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you. Jesus, we love you. And for those who don't know you yet, I pray that you would show your love for them. Jesus, I remember when I was wandering the streets, wondering, are you real? Are you there? And you broke into my life. And through all of the pain, all of the trauma, all of my own brokenness, you broke through with your unconditional love. And I thank you that you still do that. And so, Jesus, I pray for everyone listening to this who's in that place, who's realizing that there's something missing. This the story of this this world isn't working that we're empty that i pray that you would break in and show your love to people your care for them and gently invite them into a relationship with you that will transform their lives and i pray for every pastor out there that they might know that they are loved that you're proud of them for what they're doing their faithfulness even in our brokenness and i pray that they may know they're not alone in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Gare Jones, my favourite vicar of LA. It's been great. <laughs> I think it's the only vicar of LA you know, to be fair, but that's <laughs> good. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today, mate. 
All right, mate. I love you lots. You've been listening to Faith with Haith. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please uh, rate it, review it, and share it with someone that you know needs to hear it. Have a great week. Much love. <laughs>